Welcome, Hemming Brainy, back to the Hemming Brainiac podcast athon. Today we're talking about Of Human Bondage, Chapter 29, BYO discussion prompts. A uh, little bit uninspired, I suppose, by that chapter. It might have just been that I was kind of not paying much attention when I read it. That could also be it. I just did 1,450 calories on my uh, walker, on my elliptical machine, which is, how long was that? About, I think it was slightly over two hours. So needless to say, I'm tired and I'm going to be sore tomorrow. Uh, just to paint you a bit of a picture, I am sitting here drenched in sweat uh, in my underwear. <laughs> I'm about to have a shower, uh, but I thought I'll do the podcast before I have the shower. I don't know why I decided to do it this way, but yeah, so I've like literally just done a, a workout, finished about, I don't know, 10 minutes ago. I just sat there and caught my breath and read on my phone for a minute, and here we are. Oops, I've got to log into this thing, podcasting website. What is that? All right. Um, chapter 29, recap by Sour Patch and Popcorn. Recap, it's winter. Philip went to his first play. He's angsty. He is angsty and ready to leave Germany to experience the world. He's also disillusioned. He, sorry. Okay. He's also a disillusioned realist. While Hayward, on the other hand, is a romantic idealist. I liked this kind of um, sense of adventure that I I got from him sort of saying, I'm done with Germany, I'm ready to go back to London, like the next chapter of my life is in London. And that's kind of clever for the author to do that because it makes you think, okay, like something's going to happen in London, I'm ready to, like I'm ready to, next, next setting, next uh, stage of his life, let's go. And, um, yeah, I don't know. It's like, it's kind of interesting, the different stages of his life from being adopted very into a very religious family, then going to a very religious, uh, like younger school, whatever that's called, boarding school. Uh, and then he goes to Germany where he kind of loses his religion and then back to London where it's almost like that's where he's going to start to take his shape as the, as the, uh, you know, as the person that he eventually is as an adult. Fix the Blue said, Hayward has a bit of a high opinion of himself, hey? I'm not lazy, darling. I'm a philosopher, don't you know? So, Philip is getting restless. Is it going to be a case of always looking for the next thing to satisfy him, or has he really achieved his goal here in Germany and is simply ready to move on, I wonder? I think it's the latter. I mean, I think everyone, to a degree will become restless at different phases of their lives. You know, we keep moving forward. Um, and if you just do the exact same thing for too long, you do, I don't know. It's kind of natural to want to progress in life, at least in some way. But I don't think that that's exactly what's happening here. I don't think he's just going to go from one thing to another and never really stick to anything. Um, he's, what did you say? Always looking for the next thing to satisfy him. I think he has achieved what he went to Germany to do. Um, and he knows he's, a, he's an Englishman. He knows that. You know, he's gone on and on about that. And so London is the place for him. And that's where he's going. 
I'm excited to see him go to London. So let's keep reading. Chapter XXX30. 30? There you go. I've never looked at XXX and thought 30 before. <laughs> it's kind of weird. Uh, XXX, chapter 30. Philip was restless and dissatisfied. Hayward's poetic allusions troubled his imagination and his soul yearned for romance. At least that was how he put it to himself. Uh, and it happened that an incident was taking place in Frau Erlin's house which increased Philip's preoccupation with the matter of sex. Two or three times on his walks among, among the hills, he had met Fräulein Cassili. Far out, I can never remember that one. Cassili? Cassili. Cassili. Wandering by herself. I'm going to go with Cassili. He had passed her with a bow. A bow and a few yards further on had seen the Chinaman. He thought nothing of it, but one evening on his way home, when night had already fallen, he passed two people walking very close together. Hearing his footsteps, they separated quickly, and though he could not see well in the darkness, he was almost certain they were Cassili and Herr Sung. Their rapid movement apart suggested that they had been talking arm in arm. Philip was puzzled and surprised. He had never paid much attention to Fräulein Cassilli. She was a plain girl with a square face and blunt features. She could not have been more than 16, since she still wore her hair long. Her long... Sorry, since she still wore her long, fair hair in a plait. That evening at supper, he looked at her curiously, and though of late she had talked little at meals, she addressed him. Where did you go for your walk today, Er... Her, Carrie, she asked. Oh, I walked up to Konigstall. I didn't go out, she volunteered. I had a headache. The Chinaman, who sat next to her, turned around. I'm so sorry, he said. I hope it's better now. Fräulein Cassilli was evidently uneasy, for she spoke again to Philip. Did you meet many people on the way? Philip could not help reddening when he told a downright rye. No, I don't think I saw a living soul. He fancied that a look of relief passed across her eyes. Soon, however, there could be no doubt that there was something between the pair, and other people in the Frau Professor's house saw them lurking in dark places. The elderly ladies who sat at the head of the table began to discuss what was now a scandal. The Frau Professor was angry and harassed. She had done her best to see nothing. The winter was at hand, and it was not as easy a matter then as it in the summer to keep her house full. Her Sung was a good customer. He had two rooms on the ground floor and he drank a bottle of Moselle at each meal. The Frau Professor charged him three marks a bottle and made a good profit. None of her other guests drank wine and some of them did not even drink beer. Neither did she wish to lose Fräulein Cassilli, whose parents were in business in South America and paid well for the Frau Professor's motherly care. And she knew that if she wrote to the girl's uncle, who lived in Berlin, he would immediately take her away. The Frau Professor contented herself with giving them both severe looks at table and, though she dared not to be rude to the Chinaman, got a certain satisfaction out of the incivility to Cassilli. But the three elderly ladies were not content. Two were widows, and one, a Dutch woman, was a spinster of masculine appearance. They paid the smallest possible sum for their pension and gave a good deal of trouble. 
but they were permanent and therefore had to be put up with. They went to Frau Professor and said that something must be done, it was disgraceful and the house was ceasing to be respectful. The Frau Professor tried obstinacy, anger, tears, but the three older ladies routed her and with a sudden assumption of virtuous indignation she said that she would put a stop to the whole thing. After luncheon she took Cassilli into her bedroom and began to talk very seriously to her. But to her amazement the girl adopted a brazen attitude. She proposed to go about as she liked and if she chose to walk with the Chinaman she could not see it was anybody's business but her own. The Frau Professor threatened to write to her uncle. Then Uncle Heinrich will put me in a family in Berlin for the winter and that will be much nicer for me and her son will come to Berlin too. The Frau Professor began to cry. The tears rolled down her coarse red fat cheeks and Cassili laughed at her. That will mean three rooms empty all through the winter, she said. Then the Frau Professor tried another plan. She appealed to Fräulein Cassili's better nature. She was kind, sensible, tolerant. She treated her no longer as a child, but as a grown woman. She said that it would be so dreadful. But a Chinaman, with his yellow skin and flat nose and his little pig's eyes, that's what it that's what made it so horrible. It filled one with disgust to think of it. Bitte, bitte, said Cassili, with a rapid intake of breath. I won't listen to anything against him. But it's not serious, gasped Frau Erlin. I love him, I love him, I love him. Gut im Himmel. The Frau Professor stared at her with horrified surprise. She had thought it was no more than naughtiness on the child's part and innocent folly. The passion in her voice revealed everything. Cassilli looked at her for a moment with flaming eyes, and then with a shrug of her shoulders went out of the room. Frau Erlin kept the details of her interview to herself, and a day or two later altered the arrangement of the table. She asked her Sung if he would not come and sit at her end, and he, with his unfailing politeness, accepted with alacrity. Cassilli took the change indifferently, but as if the discovery that the relations between them were known to the whole household made them more shameless, they made no secret now of their walks together, and every afternoon quite openly set out to wander about the hills. It was plain that they did not care what was said of them. At last, even the placidity of Professor Erlin was moved, and he insisted that his wife should speak to the Chinaman. She took him aside in his turn and expostulated. He was ruining the girl's reputation. He was doing harm to the house. He must see how wrong and wicked his conduct was, but she was met with smiling denials. Her son did not know what she was talking about. He was not paying any attention to Fräulein Cassilli. He never walked with her. It was all untrue, every word of it. Ach, her song, how can you say such things? You've been seen again and again. No, you're mistaken, it's untrue. He looked at her with an unceasing smile, which showed his even little white teeth. He was quite calm. He denied everything. He denied with bland effrontery. At last, the Frau Professor lost her temper and said that the girl had confessed she loved him. He was not moved. He continued to smile. Nonsense, nonsense. It's all untrue. She could get nothing out of him. The weather grew bad, very bad. There was snow and frost and a thaw with a long succession of cheerless days on which walking was a poor amusement. One evening, when Philip had just finished his German lesson with the Herr Professor and was standing for a moment in the drawing room, talking to Frau Erlin, Anna came quickly in. Mama, where is Cassilli? she said. I suppose she's in her room. There's no light in it. The, pra- the Frau Professor gave an exclamation, and she looked at her daughter in dismay. 
A thought which was in Anna's head had flashed across hers. Ring for Emil, she said hoarsely. This was the stupid lout who waited at table and did not did most of the housework. He came in. Emil, go down to her Sung's room and enter without knocking. If anyone is there, say you came in to see about the stove. No sign of astonishment appeared on Emil's phlegmatic face. He went slowly downstairs. The Frau Professor and Anna left the door open and listened. Presently they heard Emil come up again and they called him. Was anyone there? asked the Frau Professor. Yes, her son was there. Was he alone? The beginning of a cunning smile narrowed his mouth. No, Fräulein Cassilli was there. Oh, it's disgraceful, cried the Frau Professor. Now he smiled broadly. Fräulein Cassilli is there every evening. She spends hours at a time there. Frau Professor began to wring her hands. Oh, how abominable. But why didn't you tell me? It was none of my, no business of mine, he answered, slowly shrugging his shoulders. I suppose they paid you well. Go away, go. He lurched clumsily to the door. They must go away, Mama said Anna. And who is going to pay the rent and the taxes are falling due? It's all very well for you to say they must go away. If they go away, I can't pay the bills. She turned to Philip with tears streaming down her face. Ah, Herr Carey, you will not say what you have heard if Fräulein Forster, this was the Duchess Spinster, if Fräulein Forster knew she would leave at once, and if they all go, we must close the house. I cannot afford to keep it. Of course, I won't say anything. If she stays, I will not speak to her, said Anna. That evening at supper, Fräulein Cassilli, redder than usual, with a look of abstinence on her face, took her place punctually, but her son did not appear, and for a while Philip thought he was going to shirk the ordeal. At last he came, very smiling, his little eyes dancing with the apologies he made for his late arrival. He insisted, as usual, on pouring out the Frau Professor's a glass of his Moselle, and he offered a glass to Fräulein Forster. This room was very hot, for the stove had been alight all day, and the windows were seldom opened, Emil blundered about, but succeeded somehow in serving everyone quickly with, and with order. The three old ladies sat in silent, visibly dis- disapproving. The Frau Professor had scarcely recovered from her tears. Her husband was silent and oppressed. Conversation languished. It seemed to Philip that there was something dreadful in that gathering which he had sat with so often. They looked different under the light of the two hanging lamps from what they had ever looked before. He was vaguely uneasy. Once he caught Cassilli's eyes, and he thought she looked at him with hatred and contempt. The room was stifling. It was as though the beastly passion of that pair troubled them all. There was a feeling of oriental depravity. A faint savour of joss sticks, a mystery of hidden vices, seemed to make their breath heavy. Philip could feel the beating of the arteries in his forehead. He could not understand what strange emotion distracted him. He seemed to feel something infinitely attractive, and yet he was repelled and horrified. For several days things went on, the air was sickly with the unnatural passion which all felt about them, and the nerves of the little household seemed to grow exasperated, only her song remained unaffected, he was no less smiling, affable and polite than he had been before. One could not tell whether his manner was a triumph of civilization or an expression of contempt on the part of the Oriental for the vanquished West. Cassilli was flaunting and cynical. At last, even the Frau Professor could bear the position no longer. Suddenly, panic seized her. The Professor Erlin, was, with brutal frankness, had suggested the possible consequences of an intrigue which was now manifest to everyone, and she saw her good name in Heidelberg and the repute of her house ruined by a scandal which could not possibly be hidden. For some reason, blinded perhaps by her interests, this possibility had never occurred to her, and now, her wits muddled by a terrible fear, she could hardly be prevented from turning the girl out of the house at once. It was due to Anna's good sense that a cautious letter was written to the uncle in Berlin suggesting that Cassilli should be taken away. 
But having made up her mind to lose the two lodges, the Frau Professor could not resist the satisfaction of giving rein to the ill temper she had curbed so long. She was free now to say anything she liked to Cassilli. I have written to your uncle Cassilli to take you away. I cannot have you in my house any longer. Her little round eyes sparkled when she noticed the sudden whiteness of the girl's face. You are shameless, shameless, she went on. She called her foul names. What did you say to my uncle Heinrich, Frau Professor? The girl asked, suddenly falling from her attitude and flaunting independence. Oh, he will tell you himself. I expect to get a letter from him tomorrow. Next day, in order to make the humiliation more public, at supper she called down the table to Cassilli. I've had a letter from your uncle, Cassilli. You are to pack your things tonight, and we will put you in the train tomorrow morning. He will meet you himself in Berlin at the central Bahnhof. Very good, Frau Professor. Her song smiled in the Frau Professor's eyes, not, notwithstanding her protests insisted on pouring out a glass of wine for her. The Frau, Frau Professor ate her supper with a good appetite, but she had it triumphed unwisely. Just before going to bed, she called the servant. Emil, if Fraulein Cassilli's box is ready, you had better take it downstairs tonight. The porter will fetch it before breakfast. The servant went away and in a moment came back. Fraulein Cassilli is not in her room, and her bag has gone. With a cry, the Frau Professor hurried along. The box was on the floor, strapped and locked, but there was no bag, and neither hat nor cloak. The dressing table was empty. Breathing heavily, the Frau Professor ran downstairs to the Chinaman's rooms. She had not moved so quickly for twenty years, and Emile called out after her to beware she did not fall. She did not trouble to knock, but burst in. The rooms were empty, the luggage had gone, and the door into the garden still open showed how it had been got away. In an envelope on the table were notes for the money due on the month's board and an approximate sum for extras. Groaning, suddenly overcome by her haste, the Frau Professor sank obesely onto a sofa. There could be no doubt the pair had gone off together. Emil, Emil remained stolid and unmoved. All right, there we go, another chapter down. What? How? What? A Chinaman and a non-Chinaman? That is, that is just, well, <laughs> what was it like a hundred years ago where that's like, that is scan, that is like, not even a scandal, that's like, what did she call it? Like, unnatural or something like that. God, strange times. All right, have your say about that one over on the subreddit. Thanks for listening, I'll see you tomorrow.